Good evening, everybody, and welcome to High Spirits. I'm Jay Sagman, and with me, as always, is my pal... Noelle Schmidt. That's right. We host a show called High Spirits in which we drink alcohol and we talk about spirits. Um, Ghosts. Goblins. Phantasms. Tall men. (laughs) Um, What? (laughs) You said phantasm, and I immediately thought of the tall man, who is the bad guy in phantasm. Oh, okay. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, we talk about hitchhiking, uh, ghosts in the suburbs. Goatmen. Yeah. In the country. We've done it all. <laughs> we sure have. Uh-huh. Thank That's... you for joining us for this um, episode. Mm-hmm. And um, Noel, I can't but help notice that you are not drinking red wine tonight. You were doing something extremely special. <laughs> I am. I am drinking, um, uh, it is Castler Brute, Cava Brute. It's a... It's a champagne. It's a champagne. Because why the heck not? That's right. You walked over, you popped the cork, and I was like, uh, it's that kind of night here at High Spirits. I was like, this is happening today. <laughs> Which is perfect. Yeah, uh, so it could get weird. It probably will get weird. So uh, Noel's doing a champagne uh, drink over there, and um, I am doing um, Antihero IPA. Nice. Yeah. He's got a happy face. He does. He's got a big mm-hmm. fist. Yep. Fist face. Fist face. I'm just happy that there are uh, champagne flutes in the uh, ghost studio. The ghost studio has everything. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually asked Noelle before if she wanted a champagne flute. And she was like, no, no, no just whatever. whatever. Solo cup. Um, we actually don't have solo cups. Oh, well, okay. I've been living out of a suitcase for a month, yeah. so I've gotten really good at drinking wine out of whatever the hotel has. Now, how is your Toby Keith cover band going? <laughs> so good. Because that's why you brought up solo cups. You are traveling the country. So good. We sing songs about trucks. Yep. And America. You sure do. And um, I wear some a lot of cutoff jeans yeah denim. You, you look yeah. good thank you you're doing it now you know what i never thought that i would be at this point but you, sometimes you got to figure out how am i going to be successful well it's interesting because you're a soprano <laughs> but you pull off that toby keith i know it's so weird america america i put on a blonde beard <laughs> wear some cut off denim yeah and some flannel yeah and, you know, whatever it takes, folks, whatever it takes That's to, right. to get out there. You, I mean, you know, as they say, in this economy. I'm just evolving with the country. Yeah. This is what the country wants. They, <laughs> that's what they want. They want you to sing uh, uh, Toby Keith and play the bass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I can't believe uh, how difficult it is to play the bass. Everybody says that it's... Uh, no, it's hard. Well, especially because you're the singer. So you're keeping... You're literally keeping rhythm while you're trying to sing. It's not easy. Well, I'm also the only person in the band. (laughs) We forgot to mention that. So I'm also playing a snare drum. It's very lonely. It's really... You know what, though? I'm booking a lot of casinos Uh and county fairs. Sure. But you keep texting me pictures of sunsets. (laughs) So I know you're lonely. I am. I am. I've been writing. I've been writing a uh, scrolling hearts in the sand with your name in it. Yeah, it's gross. Stop yeah. it, please. In your poetry, I mean, it's just not that great. It doesn't rhyme. Well, no, I don't mind the. I don't mind that it doesn't rhyme. I would prefer to call them sonnets. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're not here just to talk about ourselves, although we could, if you've listened, we have. Right. Um, 
if we don't have uh, unfinished business, I'm just going to check in with Noelle. Do we have unfinished? Probably, but I don't really know. Yeah, we have lots of it. I should say that last episode, <laughs> my God, we were toe up. Yeah. Well, we did a two-parter. We sure did. And we were three sheets. A little bit. You, <laughs> I counted four twice. <laughs> <laughs> We were not doing okay. I was listening back to it and I was like, wait, whoops. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did the same. So if you're a new listener, hey, welcome. Hi. Thank um, you. Thank you so much. Um, if this is your first episode um, and you are like going back through the library and you're listening, you could avoid episode 30 if you wanted to. <laughs> or, or you'll love it. Or you'll, yeah, you'll like it a lot if you... I Maybe you have ants that get wasted and <laughs> and talk a lot. You'll enjoy it. Uh, okay. Um, you want to do some ghostesses? I, yes, please. Okay. Are you ready? You gave me a look of not ready. No, I'm always ready. Oh, you're I'm always ready, ready for roll. ghostesses. Okay, cool. I feel like I'm <clears throat> leaning over this mic um, like... Uh, um, what, was that, what was that sketch on SNL with um, the sweaty balls? NPR? Okay. It was, a th- was it an NPR thing? Yeah. Because I feel like I keep leaning over like that. You do. You just made out with your mic. I did. Gross. I mean. It's very cold. Cold, um, cold to the lip? Cold to the lip. <laughs> like a dead person who is now a ghost. Oh, oh, I see what you did. You wrapped it back in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to High Spirits, where we talk about ghosts. <laughs> uh, we're going to do that now. Uh, tonight's episode is about American Airlines Flight 191. Ghost plane? No. Oh. <laughs> What's ghost plane? That's the Malaysian plane. Oh, that's oh. Malaysia Airlines. That's totally different. Okay. I thought, well, we should write a sitcom called Ghost Plane. <laughs> I feel like every sitcom we write just has the word ghost and then just like chair. Yeah. <laughs> Lamp. Ghost, inanimate ob- object. Yeah. Ghost yeah. book. Yeah. Ghost plane. Uh, so, no, American Airlines Flight 191 is uh, one of the most famous aviation aviation disasters in American history. Okay. Um, happened right here in Chicago. Oh. This is the one we talked about having about five miles from your house. Yep. We did talk about that. Uh, guys, this is not a nice story. And if you are starting out on the show, you should know this. Jay doesn't tell nice stories. No. Oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. She's going to make you feel really bad about life and things. <laughs> you won't. This isn't nice. I hope you're in store. <laughs> you're ready for what's in store. Yeah. So I'm going to take you all the way back to 1979. Noel, it was a beautiful Memorial Day weekend. This. I was born that year. Oh, were you really? It was a great. It was Memorial Day weekend? Yeah. Probably when I was born. Very close to yeah. it. Um, someone just figured out your pin number oh and they just hacked you. <laughs> Cut. Cut. Um, good thing you have an over, you're overdrawn by $20. <laughs> Joke's on them. Joke's on you. There's no money in there. <laughs> uh, but it was, uh, May 25th, 1979. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weather in Chicago was clear. There mm-hmm. was a North uh, east wind coming in at 25 miles per hour. And the reason I mention some of this stuff is because that's flight stuff. It's important to know, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. basically what that means is um, weather was clear, it was gorgeous, and um, everything was like picture perfect. Okay. Um, this flight that we're talking about, American Airlines Flight 191, uh, was a regularly scheduled passenger flight. Um, it went from O'Hare which is here in Chicago, to Los Angeles International Airport. LAX. Yep. Um, at 2.50 p.m., 
Flight 191 pushed back from the gate. This is K5. So if you're in O'Hare and you got a layoff, layoff. Layoff? Whoops. If you're Sorry. having a layover while while being laid off. <laughs> yeah, if you're just you're just traveling away, you're unemployment. <laughs> um, <laughs> go to gate K five. Um, I want to say that a couple times K five, gate K five, because this is where that incident happened. Okay. Um, and actually later on a lot of ghostly stuff happens in gate K five. But O'Hare is so oh. busy that hardly anybody notices it's it notices that it's haunted because there's so many people bustling by. Anyhoozle, uh, before we get there, um, 191 pushed back from gate K5. Uh, and it was cleared to taxi the runway 32R. Now, O'Hare has a lot of runways, so um, that's very specific as well. Um, everything looked normal as the flight began to take off, uh, or began its takeoff roll at 302. So we're looking good. Um, just as the aircraft hit takeoff speed, which is 176 miles per hour, the number one engine and its pylon assembly separated from the left wing, ripping away a three-foot section of the leading edge with it. Ooh. Okay? Okay. Now, something you should know, and this is really important because you might be thinking, like, why did they – that? Why, why would they take off mm-hmm. then? Right. Because um, they were still on the ground. Well, the deal is you have to take off if you're going that fast. Oh, because to break would probably... Be worse. Yeah. Anything that would happen, because they're going 100... They're basically going 176 miles on rough ground. They're going to run out of runway, and they're going to hit the highway, and they're just going to keep on fucking going. Incidentally, really quick, um, uh, just because we're in the heart of March March Madness, um, the the team from Michigan um, last week, when they were flying from um, Ann Arbor to... DC for the Big Ten tournament, they actually their plane went off the runway. Oh my god! Um, and it like they had to like break severely. Like they, I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was something, something broke. Um, well, I'm so, glad they're okay. Yeah, they're all okay, but like a lot of these kids were really shaken up and yeah, like, bruises. Would be too. Things fell, like people fell and injured themselves. Um, well, yeah, and you 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 forget too. I mean, like if if this. I mean, those kids didn't because they got bruised and injured, but it's just right. like a high impact. It's actually maybe, let's say, four times worse than the high impact car crash. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like they they it, you're going to you're going to get hurt. They were clearly like rattled and um, it sounded pretty scary, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, but they're they're driving, you know, that's their driving force now. They've got a reason to live because they just won today. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, congratulations to the what was it? Michigan. Okay. University of. I'm aware of it. Wolverines, I They have a great law school. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who went there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, if you need legal advice, please call 555 Noel's Friend. <laughs> um, thank you for sponsoring the show, Noel's Friend. <laughs> Anywho, uh, we're going to go back to, um, <clears throat> so, uh, Flight 191 was uh, speeding down at 176 uh, miles per hour. Um, <clears throat> at this point, they knew that something was wrong. This this was a bad deal. But the standard operating procedure is to do an engine out climb. Okay. So the idea is if you're going that fast, you get up in the air, you basically try to um, uh, uh, fly... At, uh, I don't have the altitude on here, but at a very certain altitude and land as safely as you can. 
by okay. slowing down speed. Okay. So it's an up and down. It's called an engine out climb. Okay. Okay. Um, this tactic didn't work because while they were in the air, the engine separated or the engine separation had severed the hydraulic fluid lines that controlled the leading edge slats on the left wing and it locked them in place. So the outboard slats, which were uh, immediately left of the number one engine, um, they began to retract under the airload. Um, if that all sounds very fancy, uh, the big deal on this um, is that basically it caused the the plane to list. It basically, um, uh, as a left as a result, the left wing entered a full aerodynamic stall. So, at 325 feet above the ground, the resulting asymmetric lift caused the aircraft to commence rolling rapidly to the left and to enter a steep dive from which it could not recover. Dang. Yeah. So that's not nice. No, that's not nice at all. That's terrible. <clears throat> so um, the crash scene was in a field northwest of the intersection of Tui Avenue and Mount Prospect Road on the border of the suburbs of Des Plaines and Mount Prospect, Illinois. By the way, if you're not from the Chicagoland area, I did not mispronounce Des Plaines. It is actually called Des Plaines here. Des Plaines. <laughs> If you looked it up, it would look like uh, en français, de plan. Des Plaines. <laughs> yeah, but here, this is Des Plaines, <laughs> Illinois. Des Plaines. Yeah. So some of you, um, you know, fly in and out of our hair. You might be able to picture it. Uh, uh, yeah, just right off, right off there on Tui Avenue. Tui and Mont Prospect Road. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they just, they nosedived into Tui. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, they did basically a roll... They did a roll to the left and just poof. So the crash scene was in a field. Uh, I already just said that. Uh, but large sections of aircraft debris were hurled by the force of impact into an adjacent trailer park, destroying five trailers and several cars. Got it. And just so you know, the trailer park is going to come back into play. Because people were occupying that trailer park, I'm assuming. Uh, actually, luckily for them... No one in the trailer park was injured. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Luckily for them. There were uh, two fa- two fatalities on the ground. Okay. But none of them happened in the trailer park. But the trailer park's coming back. Okay. Um, this plane was a DC-10. This might be the first time I'm mentoring, mentioning what kind of plane it was. Um, uh, also, cra- uh, parts of it crashed into an old aircraft hangar located at the edge of the airport at the former site of what was called the Ravenswood Airport, which was at that time just used for storage. Mm-hmm. So um, the because the plane was filled with fuel, they hadn't burned any fuel off, right? Right. So they had enough fuel to go... Oh, no. Right, dude? Oh. This is not a nice story. Okay. Yep. So they had enough fuel to go from Chicago to L.A. And um, anyway, the nearly full fuel load ignited in a huge fireball almost immediately. Uh, The aircraft was completely destroyed with no significant pieces of the fuselage remaining. Wow. Yeah. Um, Here's a summary. So on that plane, there were 258 passengers. There were 13 crew members. Uh, Every single person died. Right. So the fatalities were 273 on the plane itself. Um, 
and I already mentioned this, um, but uh, two people on the ground, uh, two employees at the at a nearby repair garage, okay, were killed from just like falling debris. Debris probably. came right out of the sky, like the beginning of Don- La Bamba. Oh, I thought you were going to mention Donnie Darko. I thought we were going to mirror also, talk that. Oh, also Donnie Darko. You literally went, like, your mouth went, and it was like, Donnie Darko, and you were like, La Bamba. La Bamba. When uh-huh. Richie Valence sees his brother, it's his brother, right? In the beginning? And that There's that plane crash in the beginning. It's been a really long time. And that's why Richie Valence is afraid to fly, and then <clears> Buddy <throat> he finally Holly does. and the Big Bopper talk him into getting on that charter plane. And, yeah. God damn it. Oh, Donna. So sad. Not his most famous Speaking song. Speaking of that era, uh, we lost Chuck Berry. Yeah. Yesterday as I, well. Um, and extremely conflicted about that. There there are some things about Chuck Berry and his womanizing and his... I wouldn't call keeping, it womanizing. I would call it criminal behavior. Video cameras of <laughs> filming women in the bathroom that is not okay. Not okay, Chuck uh, Berry. His contribution to music... Is extraordinary. Unbelievable. So, I grew yeah, up listening to Chuck Berry. It's tough. It's very tough because he did some pretty terrible things. Chuck Berry was my dad's uh, favorite recording artist. Yeah. Uh, second to mm-hmm. um, Little Richard. Ah, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Your dad has good taste. Yeah. So Chuck Berry, a uh, gr- uh, great musician in the same way that um, Bill Cosby's a good comedian. Oh, <laughs> I knew you were going there. Okay. Sorry about it. Um... Also on the ground, there were um, six injuries. Okay. In this. So, sorry, we went from Bill Cosby to Flight 191. <laughs> we'll remain on Flight 191. <laughs> we won't. We won't. We will segue again. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably. <laughs> um, of the victims, only about a dozen bodies were found intact. Oh, my God. So, 273 I mean, people were killed on that flight and only about a dozen. Because they were incinerated. <sighs> yeah. Ugh. But if not incinerated, uh, yes, they were, but they were also, or I mean, imagine. Crushed and maimed and. A very high speed car accident. Right. Um, so they basically were going 175 or 176 miles per hour plus, and they crashed, uh, they nosedived about 320 feet above ground level. Did you, did you say how high up in the air they got? Uh, 325 feet. Okay. That'll do it. Yep. That'll do it. Um, so anyway, I, I, again, that engine out climb was supposed to work. It was supposed to take them out of right. the danger zone of just crashing, um, except for they, because of the um, damage, they just they couldn't catch enough air to be able to land properly. Um, in case you're wondering, uh, American Airlines and uh, DC-10, which is the airplane style, uh, had a lot of blame in this incident, um, and also rightfully so. I don't have this p- on my piece of paper, but I did a shit ton of research. So it is worth mentioning that this plane was actually damaged three weeks prior. And oh. no one, yeah, no one did anything about it. Of course. Right? Well, um, anyway, but in response, uh, Unsinkable ship. Yeah, I know. <laughs> did I say that they were fined $500,000? You did not say that. Yeah, no. so American Airlines uh, got in trouble and they were fined $500,000 by the U.S. government for improper maintenance procedures in 1979. I, not enough. Not enough. And also, I mean, $500,000 in 1979 is a lot of money, but it's still, it's not enough. And uh, were there 
like what kind of regulations and safety procedures were put in place after this to avoid this from happening again? Anything? You know, actually a lot. Um, okay. There is an interesting, um, I also don't have this on my piece of paper and I can't really talk extensively to it, but I, I read way more than I'm going to share about the DC-10. The DC-10 was um, a specific um, type of plane and because of this accident, it ended up getting, some Some believe, a very unfair reputation in the aviation world. Okay. Um, at this, at a certain point, no one would fly in a DC-10. It's kind of like a Ford Pinto. You know how it got yeah. like almost like an unreasonable, right. like yeah. if you get in it, you'll blow up kind of thing. So right. there is a, um, uh, a book, I want to say Michael Crichton of the Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton wrote a book about... Um, Basically, like, the defaming of the DC-10. It was called, like, how to destroy an airplane. And not meaning how to blow one up, but how to destroy one's reputation. Um, Just take some bad press. And I guess the death of 273 plus two people. (laughs) Right. It's a lot of people. That'll do it. I want to talk a little bit about the first responders, just to give you a sense. Now, um, whenever I do something like this... uh, Now, I'm not explicitly talking about ghosts Mm -hmm. yet, but the reason why I'm setting the tone for this is we've talked about resonant energy on this show, and we have talked about the idea that um, in a place of violence, high drama, and um, uh, surprising death, that uh, spirits have a tendency to uh, remain, whether it's because of an imprint or it's because there are actually apparitions who are confused that may not even know they're dead. Right. So they're trapped. Yes. This this was blink and you missed it. An air crash on an airplane. Um, they went up. They went down, and then they were dead. So actually, a lot of the ghost stories have to do with that. Well, and that's and that's that's exactly the point. Like you're saying, it happens so quickly, and a lot of times the the thought is that. Um, the spirits that do remain that are confused, it's because they died so suddenly and unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Um, that they don't know they're dead. They don't know they're dead. Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of like reliving this moment mm-hmm. over and over again. Or they're they're lost and wandering and they have no idea how to get to where they need to go. Mm-hmm. And we're going to so, see that actually a okay. lot. A lot of ghosts that need help. Need help. So I bring up the first responders because I want you to understand the magnitude of this particular situation at the site, an unnamed fireman assisting at the scene of the crash stated is a quote. We didn't see one body intact, just trunks, hands, arms, heads, and parts of legs. And we couldn't tell whether they were male or female or whether they were adults or children because they were all so charred. Right. Here's another first responder. And this is also a quote. It was too hot to touch anybody. They were talking about, like, even if they could find somebody intact. Yeah. Right? It was too hot to touch anybody, and I really couldn't tell if any of them were men or women. Bodies were scattered all over that field. So they basically had to, and you're going to get there as far as identification. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I will. This is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to uh, just talk about three men that had some very specific experiences that um, these are still first responders, um, but they were, um, I was able to do some research and, and just find out more from them. Mm-hmm. There was a guy called Tom Farinella. He was a displays firefighter. At that time, he was 26. 
and he was acting as a lieutenant on truck 81 um, when the call came in that the plane crashed. This is what he had to say about it. I can remember planes still taking off and banking through the column of smoke. You hoped that there were people that you could save, but it became evident that there were not. It was just devastation. You knew that there were hundreds of people dead in that field. Uh, Farinella uh, also said he returned to the crash the following day as an observer. He felt like the first day he was in, like, um, not survivor mode, but like a... Um, I guess firefighter mode, right? Hero mode. Yeah, yeah, Or just yeah, like, yeah. you know, trying to help. But the next day he was back and he was just looking. Um, he said of this, of the visit, what hit me the day was seeing all the stakes in the ground signifying where the remains were. So I want you to Ugh. imagine this. This is a field that they've started to work on trying to clear these, um, trying to figure out who these people are, trying to clear, trying to find people intact, mm-hmm. trying to whatever. And so there's stakes in the ground wherever they've found a tooth, an ear, oh a foot. God. And so it's bas- basically the whole field is covered in stakes. So did they, they, did they quickly abandon any hope of finding anyone, any survivors? Uh, yeah. They, they, they realized really quickly because uh, they um there was another story that I don't actually I didn't put on my sheet because it was um just a really uh I don't mean to put it negatively it's a really rambling story um most of us tell rambling stories we can't help it about somebody um who who uh was on call at a hospital that day and when tragedies like this happen they usually like three medical centers are contacted immediately and they're like, you know, go into triage mode, make sure that you clear all these rooms. And so, um, they called three area hospitals and, um, the, this this guy was a resident who, um, told this story that they were waiting for like an hour they were just like waiting and they knew they, they, they had like prepared these rooms and, Prepared um, ORs and prepared um, gurneys, etc., uh-huh. to take care of victims. And after an hour passed, um, they realized no one was coming. Ugh. Yeah, and yeah. It, it hit him like a ton of bricks. And I actually can't remember his name, but um, he he said as a doctor that was uh, it was one of the things that it was like. It's one thing to go into crisis mode and prepare for all this, and then it's another to realize, holy shit, we just right. we just went into crisis mode and no one is coming. That's how right. bad this is. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Paul Marcotte. Um, Paul Marcotte is not that big of a deal. He's just a what? Well, if you're listening, Paul, sorry. Um, but he uh, <laughs> then he was he was 25 years old and he was the Daily Herald's. Um, police beat reporter okay he's just a reporter hitting the streets um and he wasn't um listen to the listen to the he did it all the time uh scanner the scanner yeah Yeah. so he would do a lot of like following emergency vehicles Mm -hmm. and um you know trying to get into any accidents anyway so he heard about this accident and uh paul marcotte um actually uh, uh, he he very recently um, um, 
said that he, I mean, compared to today, he got any, he got closer than any reporter would likely get. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was there, he was in the carnage, he could see everything. And there was, this is what he said. This is a quote. There was no security set up. He added that his uh, red car uh, that he was driving looked like a fire department vehicle, so no one stopped him. This is what he said. Hunks of flesh, body parts, and open luggage were scattered throughout the field. Jesus. Marquette was, uh, sorry, Marcotte, M-A-R-C-O-T-T-E. Sorry, Paul, for messing up your name. Um, basically said that he had nightmares for years. Mm-hmm. So this poor 25-year-old beat reporter who kind of went in to get the story of a lifetime had PTSD. Yeah. Uh, and he actually switched beats. He was like, I'm not, I can't, I, I never want to see, I never want to see an accident again. I'm not going to pr- report crime scenes. That's how fucked up the car- yeah. the carnage was. Right. I got one more for you. Okay. Okay. Um, this guy's name is uh, Dr. John Kennedy. Okay. Uh, and Dr. John Kennedy uh, was the first forensic dentist on the scene after the crash. Oh, so did he get called in right away? So, yeah, pretty much. Once, Interesting. Once they realize, so this is, so once the, once the doctor doctors. Yeah. Not the dentists aren't doctors. We need a forensic dentist on the scene immediately. Well, once they realize that they were not going to be taking people to hospitals and right. they were not going to be saving any, anybody, right. their main goal then was to, once the bodies simmered down, was to figure out who they were. So they had chair assignments, but the chairs, the seats were everywhere. It was just hard to tell. So let me ask you this. You may. How do you get to be a forensic dentist? Are you like a dentist <laughs> Hold in on. your regular life? And then, yeah, he was. He, and then you, and then you're like on the side. I'm just really good at being a dentist. No, and, I'll tell you this. Okay, he was a dentist. I actually know this about uh, Dr. Kennedy. Because he's your dentist. I wish. <laughs> He, he what what a probably cle- not anymore because he's probably like eighty six years old. I mean maybe, but you know you don't want him taking a drill to your teeth. <laughs> My teeth are pretty sturdy. <laughs> he, he's taking like he comes at you with that floss, and you're like, oh my god, your hands are so shaky, <laughs> Doctor Kennedy. <laughs> um, at least take a sabbatical. <laughs> um, so this is interesting. Um, actually, uh, Doctor. It's not Kennedy. I'm sorry. It's Kenny. K-E-N-N-E-Y. Kenny. Okay. Oh, he's my dentist. Oh, yeah. I was calling (laughs) him Kennedy. Dr. Kenny, yes. I was throwing a D in the end uh, just because I'm obsessed with JFK. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He actually uh, contracted with American Airlines. Mm. At that time, there there had been... um, Sorry, I just spilled on your white couch. God damn it. <laughs> it's just champagne, it's just though. It's just champagne. Yeah, Sorry. so it, it'll blend. Okay. White wine goes well with white couch. Rubbing it in right now. Yeah, do that. All right. <laughs> um, he was contracted by who? Uh, American Airlines. Oh. Yeah. So, th- so this is, of course, American Airlines Flight One Ninety One, and so they for um, all the corpses that they carried, or for their employees. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, prior to this incident, um. Uh, there had been other plane crashes. Okay, well, I guess, yeah. Yeah, and so American Airlines um, had him on the payroll. And he had actually just returned from taking a week-long course in aircraft accident investigation at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, D.C. Some good timing. Yeah. Um, So he was already um, 
a a forensic dentist, but he um, had even more training as far as uh, how to identify people after an aircraft accident. Okay. Right? So, you know, good luck getting... I mean, that's nice that uh, Dr. John Kenny was out there. Yeah. Um, He was part of a team of 30 dentists, then tapped to identify victims from the charred remains. Ugh. So they had 30 dentists working on this. Okay. Uh, he drove to uh, American Airlines Blue Hangar at O'Hare, which later became a makeshift morgue. Let me repeat for anyone who's listened to this show: American Airlines Blue Hangar at O'Hare, which later became a makeshift morgue. Mm-hmm. Chances are, if you go to that uh, uh, hangar, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> all clear here. You won't feel weird at all. <laughs> Your hair won't stand up. You won't feel any cold spots. Nope. All good. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, No residual energy from that. Nope. Uh, Anyway, by 5.30 p.m., remember the crash happened around like, they took off about 3.02. Yeah. Um, By 5.30 p.m., he was already surveying the crash site, and he just remembers, um, this is actually a quote from him. He felt like he was walking into a sea of death. Which is... I mean, he was. Quite a visual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One image that stuck with him um, was when uh, that makeshift morgue we were talking about. There was a company called Batesville Casket Company. They unloaded 300 caskets into the blue hangar. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Kenny said... uh, Dr. Kenny said that uh, some victims were identified with mere jaw fragments and in one case with a single tooth. Wow. Yeah. They had their shit together. Yeah. Um, by the end of the investigation on July 15th, um, if you remember the day of the crash, that was uh, May 25th. So the investigation ended July 15th. Um, at that time, uh, the remains of 30 out of 273 victims remained un- unidentified. Okay. So there were 30 people out of that total who they didn't know. So they, but weren't they able to pull the flight manifest and pull? Yes. But the, uh, because of the flight manifest, they could match the dental records, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But for these, for these particular, um, uh, remains. Now, when I say remains, remember all the other people, they were like, sometimes it was a finger. Sometimes it was a hand. Right. We had one person identified by a single tooth. Right. So that means that these people either didn't have any, like... And by the way, this is pre-DNA. Yeah, so they didn't have dental records. They had or, dental records, oh, which is why the forensic dentist... No, I'm talking about the 30 people. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they just... Or it was hard to tell, or it was hard. inconclusive. Yeah, okay. But were they able to then match those 30 people against the flight manifest and know... That these were probably the 30 people yeah. they were? I think so, because here's what they did. Um, I mean, they, they weren't willing to say this for sure is this person. Right. Um, but those 30 people were actually shipped to California. The, the remains of wh- okay. whomever those 30 people were. Right. And they were actually buried in a group ceremony. Okay. So they were buried together. So I don't, since the plane was going from Chicago to LA, I don't know how they determined that. Right. If they were like, maybe there's a LA people, but maybe they couldn't find them in Chicago and say so they were like, yeah. maybe they're LA people. 
And so they bury them out there in California. And this is one of those things, like, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the last episodes with um, burial. And um, we were talking about, like, when families want to give their their loved ones a proper burial and how mm-hmm. that's important. And, and something like this, I could see being very unsettling if it was someone that was close to me that was on that plane and we can't identify their body because there's that weird thing where it's like obviously they're on the plane but are they <laughs> and 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 you it's one of those things where you like just have that lingering like yep. question mark of maybe maybe they decided to get off maybe they yeah or maybe they missed the flight maybe they took advantage of the fact that we think that they're dead Hang on to that thought. That okay. might come in handy a little bit later for funsies. All right. Because it's just a weird, I mean, you know. You have uh, a touch of the shining today. <laughs> <laughs> you keep like. I'm sleep deprived. <laughs> right? You're sleep deprived. So your precognition is just off the charts. Right. Uh, okay. So. It's, maybe it's the bubbly. It could. <gasps> oh. It's the champagne and the fact you spilled it on my couch. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that will never come out. <laughs> it will smell so nice. Oh my God. When we stop doing high spirits, let's just take my couch to the alley and just set it on fire. Let's <laughs> see what happens. Uh, give it a proper, bur- proper burial. A proper burial. Your Viking, Viking burial. Your Viking funeral. <laughs> Finally, somebody gets a proper burial right? here. Um, so. Now I'm going to get to haunting hauntings um, okay. reports, but please, please do know with all that terrible stuff that happened that clearly, even if people, even if people now did not, I don't know, you know, people could walk through the field where that happened and feel like terrible and maybe not know why. Um, right. It's like walking through a war zone or like, like yeah. the, all the battlefields, like the civil war battlefields mm-hmm. and you, you feel something weird. Yeah. Yeah, in all those Virginia places. <laughs> all those Virginia places. Um, okay, so um, my first uh, uh, reports of hauntings come from um, drivers. Oh, drivers passing by. Um, according to Displains, and no, I'm not pronouncing that wrong. According to Displains, police <laughs> officers um, immediately motorists began reporting odd sights. Um, within months of the crash. They would call in about seeing odd bobbing white lights in the field where the aircraft had gone down. Now we would call those orbs. That's just a UFO. <laughs> yeah, the UFO was there. Um, Come on. No, but uh, yeah, so, so people... orbs were hanging out in the field. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. motors driving by would, would see a lot of this action and, and they would uh, call it in and the cops were like, nope, there's nothing there. Um, <laughs> or lightning bugs? Fireflies? <laughs> no, they're actually bigger than that. And actually, okay. the, the police uh, reported that they first thought that these were uh, uh, flashlights um, of uh, uh, basically like assholes. They thought that um, like... Oh, people were messing with... Ghoulish souvenir hunters and like weirdos were walking right. through the field at night, whether right. they were like trying to scare themselves or they were trying to... Um, you know, just, just do... You know how people are. Yeah. Um... Well, and now there are those, um, have you seen those balloons that have the lights on the inside and they glow? You can buy them at Walgreens. Um, they're very cool. Okay. 
so they're like kind of fun for a nighttime party if you're oh, outside. Sure. And you just I have... was outside earlier today. Oh, how was it there? <laughs> oh, it was fine. <laughs> Felt like the outdoors. Yep. Uh, no, it's there. They basically have like an LED light inside. So when you blow them up, it like triggers the light. Oh, that's cool. And so they glow. So I would imagine now people are going to be having like outdoor parties and neighbors are going to be like, I saw some floating lights in your backyard. I saw an orb. <laughs> your backyard is haunted. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, officers would, um, of course, respond to these reports and mm-hmm. they would walk through the field, um, which is, must have been terrifying, and they would actually find that it was silent and deserted. Which is even more terrifying. Right. Like, you, yeah, silence is the worst. And I'm sure... The worst. The, as much, as much cleanup as they did, they might have, there might have been something left over in that field. Totally. So, um... Yeah. Anyway, um, let's go to the the trailer park um, that was part of the um, so nearby the site that five trailers were destroyed and cars in the trailer park were um, uh, also destroyed. I actually didn't get a name on this trailer park, and I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because they're trying to remain anonymous. There there are a couple things that I really dug deep, and I found out actual names on. Um, I mean, I know this happened in nineteen seventy nine, so. Um, you know, somebody out there probably knows the trailer park name, and I just didn't find it. Um, so within hours of the crash, residents of this trailer park claimed that they heard knocking and rapping sounds at their doors and windows. Um, uh, so many responded, and, and they would open up their doors. And actually, a, uh, a, a number of people living in this trailer park were uh, retirees and off-duty police and firefighters. And they opened up their doors and they found that no one was there. I'm so spooked out right now. I know. I'm so... Oh. You're going to get more spooked out. Oh, man. So, um, uh, without... Anyway, without talking to... With, without talking to, to each other, without realizing it, um, what they were reporting, basically, is that these spirits who maybe found themselves in a field found the nearest place to go because they still thought they were alive and they were trying to get help. Um, there were countless reports of dogs barking basically at nothing slash the field. Um, doorknobs being turned and rattled. Footsteps heard approaching and clanging metal on stairs. One resident claimed to open uh, their door to a man who said, quote, he had to get his luggage. And then he said he had to make a connection. And then that man turned and vanished into the darkness. I don't have words, right? Like, I'm <laughs> so creeped out by all of this. Yeah, it's shivery. Oh, and sad. I just kind of want to cry. I know. Um. So there was this guy uh, who was walking his dog a little outside of the trailer park, kind of near the area of the crash. Uh-huh. Um, and he said as he was walking his dog, he was approached by uh, just like a younger man um, who said he needed to make an emergency phone call. Um, now, I remember at the time there was no cell phones. This is kind of maybe hard in your 2017 minds to get across. But this mm-hmm. was um, um, 1979. Um, and so the man began to po- like turn to begin to point the younger man to the um, the rotary phone. 
Well, the the payphone oh, okay. near the trailer park. Um, oh, I sort of skipped a beat here. Uh, anyway, so um, the man was really curious about the younger man initially because he reeked of gasoline and he also appeared to be smoldering. And he was nervous. He, he was basically like you know did you get in a car accident what's happening are you okay um when he turned to point out the nearby payphone the younger man vanished as if he had never been there ah (laughs) yeah (laughs) so this is not nice i mean basically all these ghosts are um asking anybody they can for help right Uh uh-huh um let's talk about o'hare itself okay um Travelers have reported seeing a man making a telephone call uh, from a booth that is located. Now, this was several years ago. There aren't that many telephone booths left over. So remember, Mm -hmm. this was gate K5. Um, But people had reported, um, uh, quite a few people had reported that uh, they would see a man making a telephone call that was located close to the departure gate. Um, They said that he was normal looking except for his business attire was out of date. So it looked like he was wearing 70s clothes. Right. Like a wide tie, maybe like a 70s color, that kind of thing. Right. Belt, like kind of a little bit of a bell bottom. Yeah, like Like just just a a look that was a little like, who's that guy, right? Got some pleats. Yeah, hipster or ghost. Right. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um... Uh, what what people would report seeing is that is that the man would step away from the telephone booth and then uh, vanish into thin air, thin air. Okay. Um, and this is also extremely sad, and I don't know exactly what to make of it. It doesn't really function narratively, but um, many people report um, seeing phantom pilots and stewardesses rushing to the gate of flight one ninety one. Um, as if in the, as if they're in a hurry or as if it's like business as usual. Now remember this flight went back and forth from Chicago to LA basically every day. Right. <clears throat> so do you think that So this could have been just phantom crew members that right, didn't that... really realize they were dead and just kept going about their business. Oh yeah, okay. I didn't think about it that way. I was thinking that there's this is probably resonant energy in the way that Could be. Um did I was thinking more of the way, like, they saw the plane go down and possibly other um, flight attendants and pilots that were... Oh, rushed to the gate? Rushed to the gate because they're, they're friends and co-workers that are on that plane or, you know, that it's their it's their industry. Could be. Trauma leaves an imprint. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. No, I'm with you. And I, I don't... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um... Because that's got to be, you know, that's that's the other side that um, we're not talking about is all of the people that watched this happen from the Oh, yeah. And what kind of an imprint that left. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's, you know, it's the same thing with it, all those people that actu- actually saw the towers go down mm-hmm. in 9-11 and actually saw that firsthand um, and how, like horrifying and they're probably suffering from PTSD as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's a similar situation. Mm -hmm. So um, by all accounts, by everything I read, the um, O'Hare, the only reason I put these few things on here is that they're hard to, hard to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people at the airport are, are, are not 
really there for a paranormal experience. It's out of context. Most people right. are there during the day. Right. And we talked about that. People are, as we are, we are diurnal, so we're not expecting mm-hmm. phantoms during the day. But people have reported, like, there was a pilot standing here, and now there's not. Or there right. was a man in 70s clothes standing here, and now there's not. <laughs> like, so it's... In the hustle and bustle of trying to travel, and you you travel a lot by plane, right? Um, it's like, is that a ghost or am I just? I don't even like pay any attention at all. <laughs> I am only. I get to the airport. Uh-huh. I go through security, uh-huh. and I have pre checks, so I zip through that. Um, and I usually probably stop and get a coffee because I usually take early morning flights. Um, and that, like, I've got it timed down to the fact, to the point where I like, I get to my gate pretty much right when they're boarding. Uh-huh. So I am on a mission. I'm not paying attention to anybody other than the people who get in my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm trying to zip around them because yeah. I'm at that airport so often that I know exactly where I need to be. Yeah. So and I think, I mean, like I'm going back to that. I'm not paying attention at no. all. And I think that, the, you know, a lot of people that are traveling at the same time that I am at least are also traveling for business and not paying attention to anything other than where they need to be. Well, I'll say this for all of you who travel a lot from O'Hare next time you're in the K's next time you're near K five and you're not hustling and bustling or you feel a cold spot or something's happening. uh, Take a moment. Um, I, this is a note to myself. I can't tell you the amount of times I've flown out of the K's and just, I always fly American airlines. I do not. Yeah, you fly. You you're a midway guy. I'm midway. You're so, southwest. I'm yeah. American Airlines. The midway I'm has its other issues where the runway is too short. The yeah. landing strip is too short. So every time you <laughs> land at midway, they've got to slam on the brakes, and you just hope that you're going to not drive off. Yeah. Oh my. It's only happened once or twice. I know they always talk about extending it, but there's always an issue. Ugh. Okay, so I just have a few more things. Um. D- Here's just a like a factoid that I thought was interesting. Um, this is about a memorial. Uh, there was no permanent memorial uh, for the victims until 2011. Wow. Yeah. And I thought this was a kind of a nice story. Um, funding was obtained for a memorial in 2009 through a two-year effort by the sixth grade class of Decatur Classical School in Chicago. Right? Chicago's nice. very own. Thank you. Oh, man. Thank you, Decatur Classical School. Will you stop spilling on my couch? I'm sorry. Your champagne is out of control. I don't know how to pour it. <laughs> um, oh, God. This memorial is a two-foot concave wall with interlocking bricks displaying the names of the crash victims. And it was uh, formally dedicated in a ceremony on October 15th, 2011. That's very nice. Yeah. And in case you're wondering, that memorial is located in a park two miles east of the crash site. Okay. Noel, remember before when you were like, what if someone was just all like, yeah, someone was on that plane. I'm going to fake my death. Girl, are you ready for this? Yes. I have shivers all over my body. I have known about Flight 191 for so long. I found out a true crime story. (gasps) Yeah. Okay. I'm this like waiting for you. Blew to my mind. 
Okay. And so I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just saying I'm excited because I did so much. It was weird. It like came up as just like so randomly that I <laughs> did maybe as much research on this true crime story as I did on Flight 191 because I never heard this. Right. Now, exactly as Noel had posited, imagine if someone got away with murder by saying that their girlfriend was on Flight 191 and she was never recovered because no one was recovered and they couldn't find her body. Oh, my God. And they got away with murder for 22 years. Wow. Imagine, if you will, because that's what happened. Wow. That's almost the perfect crime. Yeah. Um, So we're going to talk about Diana Chorba. Okay. That's C-H-O-R-B-A for anybody who is interested in looking up more information. Um, in May of 1979, Diane Chorba, Diana Chorba, age 31, was three months pregnant when Aww. she disappeared. Uh-huh. Um, actually, you know what? I just realized on my sheet, I have Diane sometimes and Diana at other times. I wonder if these two newspaper articles couldn't get it together. Let's go with Diana. Let's go with, Di- I don't know, let's go with Diane, Diane Chorba. All right. Um, so this awful creep, his name is Clarence Oliver Bean, um, they all called him Ollie, um, was having an affair with Chorba. Um, he was married. Right. Um, he was married to a gal named Judy. Um, he and Judy had four kids of their own, but he was having this affair with um, Diana Chorba and um, actually, they had already had a child together. Him and Diana. Yeah. Di- he- Diane, Diana. Yeah. Okay. Which one should we do? Let's call her Di. Yeah, Di. Okay. All right. No, because she died. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, like, just like Princess Di. Okay, so Who now we just have died. to call her Diane. Diane it is. All right. So they had actually already had a child together, and their second child was on the way. She was three months pregnant. Did the wife know? Hang on. Oh, my God. Well, the answer is yes. Okay. But hang on. Oh. Anyway, um, when Bean was investigated, Ollie, when Bean was investigated, um, uh, he claimed that Diane Chorba was killed on American Airlines Flight 191, which had just recently crashed near his home in Chicago, Illinois. Now, they looked and looked. Um, as they had for other people, they could actually, they finally confirmed that uh, Chorba's remains were never found in that field, and she was eliminated as one of the passengers on that flight. Was she on the, on the manifest? No. Oh, well then, how? Well, there was a cockamamie kind of thing. Now, remember, I mean, pre-9-11, you could walk to Gates, you could get on and off planes, you you could buy a ticket. You could buy, I mean... You could buy a ticket with cash. You, you could walk right up there and be like, can I get on the next flight? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. You could give somebody else your ticket. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just... Okay. Different times. That's all. Yeah. 1979. Different times. Dumb. Anyway, so he said that he had driven his girlfriend to O'Hare mm-hmm. and that she was going to L.A. And he was so upset uh, that she died. He mourned her and their uh, unborn child. But he basically was like, nothing I can do. She died on the plane. Ugh. Well, in January of 1980, so just the next year, uh, Ollie Bean left um, the area and he moved his family. He was already married. Remember? Right. To Oregon. Okay. So here's where it, here's where it gets crazy. What happened to the um, Diane's 
existing child. Oh, she's alive. She was at the trial of Ollie. Well, we'll get there. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, he. So he moves his family to Portland. Yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think that Diane's child goes with him. Okay. But I think her family keeps that child and Ollie goes with his family. Got it. That's, that's, that's what I want. Yeah. Know. That said, um, I could be wrong on that. The, 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 I really looked at this for so long. Um, <laughs> that it was actually hard for me to even get names. Okay. Um, clearly because it's, we're still not sure what her actual name is. Yeah. Um, anyway, so fast forward to February 16th, 2001, Mm -hmm. Clarence Oliver Bean, AKA Ollie, uh, at that time was 56. He was arrested in Mayville, Oregon for the murder of Diane Chorba. Um, that crime had been committed 22 years earlier in a small town in Michigan. Okay. In the end, Bean's wife, Judy, testified that she was with Bean when he dip- disposed of Diane Chorba's body in the woods near Luther, Michigan. Oh, my God. Dude, she, she was with him. His wife was yeah, with him. I got it. I okay. I keep saying it in a way that just, I no. just... Mm. So Judy Bean, by the way, P.S., they were like, okay, so what the fuck is up with you? Right. Like, why did you, why did you not say anything? What's your story, Judy? Judy, what up? (laughs) Well, poor, I don't mean to laugh. Poor Judy Bean um, testified. So she actually testified against her husband. Right. And um, she said that, that. Uh, Ollie had showed her Diane's body under a tree stump near rural Bristol, Michigan. Okay. Yeah. And um, testified that he made her come to the woods with uh, him to get rid of it. So was Judy a battered wife? Yes. Was there a domestic? Okay. One more. Judy um, told, as she testified... Um, she said that she kept silent about it for more than two decades because she was terrified of her husband. Mm-hmm. He had been abusing her the entire time they had been married. Well, I mean, he killed his mistress, so... And she knew of his mistress, who were who was also killing... Right. Not killing, so, uh, carrying his children. Obviously, yeah, he's a terrifying individual. By the way, I don't have this on my sheet, but Judy, um, according to the newspaper article that I read... Um, when they ca- when they didn't cart him away, but that's <laughs> such language. When they uh, basically were they sentenced him and walked him right. away, they they asked her how she felt, and she said um, she said that she hated him, and she was happy that she would never have to see him again. Wow! And that she was lucky that she could finally feel safe. Poor Judy, right? That's terrible. What a miserable life. Uh huh. Took me forever to find her name too. It was very confusing. And they had four children together. Judy and Ollie uh, did, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, this is also not on my sheet of paper, but just for, for spice and colorful interest. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular person, Clarence Oliver Bean, was such just a piece of shit that um, he actually went to prison um, um, already in a wheelchair because his daughter shot him. What? What? <laughs> yeah. Why? Because he was coming after uh, uh, Judy and th- this daughter. Oh, my God. And she had had enough, and she shot him, and he uh, ended up having to Good. live out his life in a wheelchair. Fuck him. Right? Anyway, uh, he 
is, um, I don't know if he's still alive, actually. Um, but in 2001, he was sentenced when he was 56. So I doubt he's still alive. He he was living hard. Maybe. I mean, that's only 16 years ago. Yeah, but if you see the pictures of him when he was... Right. Okay. You know, he was li- he was he was a truck driving hard living man. Got it. Is all I'm trying to say. Okay. Um. Anyway, uh, when he was convicted at that time, he uh, was sentenced to 30 to 60 years in a Michigan prison, and they extradited him from uh, Oregon. Okay. So that to me, <laughs> aside from the fact that Flight 191 is so interesting, anyway, I could not believe that I found that extremely random true crime story. Yeah, I like it. Which really floats my boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was all terrible. <laughs> that was not nice. Any uh, any final thoughts or last words, Noah? Um, <laughs> I'm really excited about getting on a plane in a couple of days again. Uh, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, nope. You're set? I'm good. All right. That's just, yeah, it's just very sad. It's all very, very sad. It's not, yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, that's all the time we have uh, tonight on High Spirits. Um, we'd like to, as usual, thank our sponsors for providing us with alcohol to drink as we talk about ghost stories and fairly awful things. Mm-hmm. Um, Noelle, who are you drinking? Uh, Castler Cava Brut. Yeah, that's champagne, yeah? Because why the heck not? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's time to be bubbly and party. Woo! As this last hour has told you, this that's right. an incredibly appropriate choice. <laughs> Sometimes we got to keep it light. Right? Um, and then I am drinking uh, Antihero IPA, which is something I drink on the show all the time. So Revolution, I mean, if you're not going to sponsor us, like, come on. What the heck, you guys? Come on, dude. What the heck? We're giving you free publicity. Revolution. It's amazing. Two Go people there. listen to this podcast, and they're all over the revolution. Sure. And one's in Ghana, and two are in Australia, <laughs> which equals three. We <laughs> can't do math. We're not good at math. <laughs> at all. Oh. Um, anyway, tonight's uh, High Spirits has been brought to you by American Airlines. Thanks for sponsoring us. And their death flight of uh, 191 in... Oh Nineteen seventy nine. My name is Jay Stagman, and with me, as always, is my pal Noel Schmidt, and she has something horrible to say to you. Sweet dreams. <laughs>